0: in The Theology of the Spiritual Life, is the idea of growth and healing in Christ. And so we'll give virtually the entire fourth lecture here in this series to just that concept. Given especially the damage done to our condition by original sin, our need for healing, especially healing by the gifts of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of Christ that comes from participation in the sacraments, our need is desperate. Although the likeness of God is damaged and deformed in us, Christ remains the model for everything that we are and everything that we possess by nature. Only by coming to reflect the divine likeness and by becoming participations in the divine nature are we able to become what God wanted us to be at the beginning of creation. One thinks, for instance, of that line from the second letter of St. Peter, first chapter. Our sanctification involves being once again given full life in Christ. Now one might think that this whole process would start by the reconstruction of our sin-wounded nature in such a way that it could again become a suitable recipient of grace. But curiously, that wasn't the divine plan. Instead, the divine likeness is poured into us at baptism as a pure gift Despite the fact that by nature, and because of whatever sin, especially if we're baptized somewhat on in life, we are unfit to receive the gift. In Christ, the Holy Spirit makes us adopted children of God, and then, having wiped away the sin, gradually restores our sin-shattered nature. During this life, the restorative work is never finished. I think that's clear from the fact that our Bodily illnesses and weaknesses, various psychic disorders to which we are invariably subject, persist. Important as it is to correct any of those things by natural means when possible, nonetheless, it would be a serious error for anyone trying to live a true spiritual life to reverse the order here and so focus, be so utterly preoccupied with efforts to heal these wounds, rather than learning to live in Christ, in whom alone these wounds can be completely healed. It is, as Thomas Aquinas insisted, a matter of grace-perfecting nature and allowing grace to do that and cooperating with it. While learning to live in Christ, who assumed a full human nature, what this really means is to make a pattern of His life into the pattern of our own lives. In the scriptures, This is shown to us by the way in which Christ recapitulates the life of Israel, and then by the way that Christ shows us how to recapitulate his own life. In his lifetime, in those 33 years, Christ completed what was incomplete in the life of Israel. He perfected what was imperfect, and he sanctified what was sinful. Each of us, in our own lifetime, needs to cooperate with the grace of Christ in order to recapitulate his life by letting the divine life take deep root in us and then by living through the various stages of his life, cognitively, affectively, and volitionally. St. Irenaeus of Lyon, one of the early and greatest of patristic theologians, he called this whole pattern of learning to live in Christ, recapitulation, anacephaliosis in Greek. It's a term he borrowed from the letter to the Ephesians, which we quoted at some length in a previous lecture and on which we tried to comment carefully. In particular, verse 10 of that first chapter, quote, for God has made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to recapitulate all things in him things in heaven, and things on earth. This is a part of the doctrine of the spiritual life that sometimes does not get as much emphasis as it deserves. But in a book called The Mystery Hidden for Ages in God, a recent volume dedicated to thinking through in detail this aspect of spirituality, Father Paul Quay explains the general nature of the process in this way. I'm quoting from page 7. God intends that through the action of his grace, each Christian must first relive in Christ during the first portion of his life all that God led his people through from the fall of Adam to Christ's death and resurrection, and then thereafter live as the Son of God in Christ in the full freedom of the Holy Spirit, so as to glorify the Father in the church by making him known to all men through the Spirit's power. Hence, as Father Quay is suggesting, there are two parts, namely, learning to relive in Christ what he perfected, and then secondly, learning to live in the freedom of the Holy Spirit. Although the spiritual journey that we must each make begins for us always at the same moment as our natural life, that is, at the point of our conception in original sin, the healing process that must go on invariably begins for us at a somewhat later time namely the time of our baptism, and then we'll need to extend throughout the length of our lives. Let me quote from a little bit later in the letter to the Ephesians and hear in the rich tones of St. Paul how this process needs to work. I'm in chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. And you he made alive when you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among these, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of our body and mind. And so we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and made us sit with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God." Now in that passage from St. Paul we hear a little bit more of the implications of what this doctrine of recapitulation is about, namely, a sense of living through in Christ all the graces that he makes available. The theology of the spiritual life must be alert to our initial condition. We can't presuppose that it doesn't happen, presuppose that we weren't in original sin, but rather were in some state of neutral nature, or perhaps in the state of the primitive savage of Rousseau. Rather, we must be alert to our initial condition and to the goals that God has set for us and then to the route that goes from one to the other. The effect of original sin in us is a deprivation of charity, a deprivation of those facets of the divine love by which we ought to be reflecting the loves of the Trinity. Although personal maturation and our personal spiritual growth are meant by God to occur together. They often develop at different rates in us, precisely because the damage of original sin endures within us even after the sin has been removed by the healing graces that begin with our baptism. Recapitulating the life of Christ slowly heals this damage to our nature. Let me quote Father Quay again briefly. Even as Jesus was the perfect Jew, who relived all the stages of the life of Israel, rectifying what was done amiss, and perfecting all else, so each Christian who lives by the grace of Christ is able to relive Israel's life in and with Jesus. Only by such a life does he become able eventually to live as befits a son of God, directed in all things by the Holy Spirit. What Father Quay's study of Jesus' recapitulation in his lifetime, a recapitulation of the whole life of Israel does, is to propose to us a study about Jesus' life that should occupy us all our life. Our basic texts for contemplating this story are, of course, the Gospels. The many subsequent retellings of the life of Christ try to capture this story, and some of them do so in marvelous ways, I particularly recommend Romano Guardini's The Lord, for he does it masterfully. One of the best efforts, however, to understand the life of Jesus explicitly in terms of this doctrine of recapitulation can be found in the middle portion, chapters 7 to 16 of Paul Quay's book, The Mystery Hidden for Ages in God. This course that we are doing presently is only an introductory course in the spiritual life. A more advanced course in spiritual theology would do well to examine in greater detail how this recapitulation of the life of Israel by Christ works and then how our own recapitulation of the life of Christ must work in our lives at each stage. Here in this introductory course we'll need to be content with a somewhat summary presentation and this can be offered to us, I think, by focusing for a few minutes on the directives that Christ gives us for the proper structuring of charity in our lives when he taught us the great commandment and the other that, as he says, is like to it. Let me read the passage from Matthew chapter 22 that concerns this. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets." One sees in a text like this that God has an absolute claim on our undivided loves, and an absolute right to our obedience with all our mind and heart and soul and strength. The love that we must give to God involves keeping his commandments, the chief of which is our love for one another in charity. One thinks of a text like the first letter of St. John, chapter five. Jesus enables us to love the Father in a way like he himself in his humanity loves the Father. In fact, we have nothing except the very gift that he gives us that we can offer back to the Father. All that we can do is to receive that gift with such complete gratitude that we will seek thereafter to do nothing else but that which the Father wants. And in this our gratitude, we will then be resembling the gratitude of Jesus himself. As you remember from that earlier lecture, the very special love that is appropriate and characteristic of the love of Jesus is the love of gratitude. And this is what we try to emulate in imitating him. From all eternity, He received everything that he is from the Father, and he freely returns it to him in gratitude. Jesus thus confirms for us in this discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, as well as in the sermon given at the Last Supper, what it is that we must do, namely to subject our will entirely to the will of the Father. In this, he is entirely at one with what God has commanded of His people in the Old Testament, but did not receive from them at all times, for obedience to God's will is the one and most authentic way of showing our love for Him, to love Him with an undivided heart and soul and mind and strength." Now as for the practical implications of these great commandments, Quay sums up the spiritual life for us when he writes about our participation in the mystical body of Christ. He says, Insofar as we live, by charity, we receive and freely accept all that Jesus offers us. We do not choose to change or alter His gift by any hankering to be different, naturally or supernaturally, save to be more like Him. Different from Him, admittedly, in countless ways, we seek to be His hands and His feet, members of His body, the Church, one in common life with Him. We do not pretend to have any independence of Him or any alternative norm or model for our lives. We will to receive all in order that we may be worthy brethren to Him who is worthy Son of the Father. In all this, Father Quay is speaking especially about the interplay between the first and second commandment. That second great commandment is like the first, for it also tells us about the proper structure of charity within us. It presumes that there is a certain kind of self-love in us, that we all love ourselves, but it does not presume that the self-love that is in us is always structured correctly. There may well be need to modify the way in which we love ourselves, for some love themselves too little, some love themselves too much, some distort the way in which they ought to love themselves. We cannot love ourselves with proper charity unless we learn to love all other people without exception. That such a commandment often left the apostles in real astonishment. and incomprehension is quite clear from the scriptures. I think in particular of that passage in Matthew where Peter is asking him how many times we need to forgive those who wrong us. And I don't think he can really comprehend for the longest time what it is that Christ gives him by way of answer how many times we need to forgive. But what the church has come to understand about Christ's command is that our love needs to imitate Jesus' love for his brothers, and only then it will be rightly ordered. To quote again from Father Quay, quote, We are then to share all that we have, not only our external goods, but our inner resources of mind and heart, still more, our faith, our hope, our charity—to whatever extent, by God's grace, we are able to share these with others. This we are called to do totally, no less than all of ourselves is in question, and for all people, without exception—not all at once and together, assuredly, but as we can, and as the occasion offers, and the prudence given by the Holy Spirit dictates. Think in this respect of mother teresa's beginning of her major work she did not seek to help the uncountable thousands dying in the filth of this world's slums nor india's only nor even calcutta's she walked only until she saw one man dying in misery and in response to jesus's love for her she took such care as she could of him but then she went on to the next one and the next until now The world over knows, if it does not very well act upon the knowledge, that Christ can be touched in his poor by each of us if we so will. In so emphasizing, what Father Quay is, I think, saying is that the depth of our charity must be that the charity of Jesus, loving God with undivided heart and loving our neighbors as ourselves to the limits of our own being, with nothing held back. Only the grace of Christ can bring this about in us, And so it is that topic we will turn in the lecture. But grasping how this works in greater detail is really the project of an entire lifetime. And crucial for this project is a learning to read and to understand what the scriptures have in mind for us. Here the Church gives us a particularly important lesson early on in the Catechism. It's about paragraphs numbers 110 to 120 when the Church is reflecting on the various levels of meaning in the scripture. And what she insists and has always insisted for the 2000 years now of reflecting upon those scriptures is that there are in the scriptures four levels, a literal level and three spiritual senses. The literal level is not what it is sometimes thought to be, namely an understanding of the text as if it were all in a newspaper or as if it were all written from the same point of view of the book of history, But rather, what the literal level of the scriptures means is to understand what the human author intended, so that if the human authors, as in the Gospels, or as in some of the historical portions of the Old Testament, if what the human author is doing is writing history, then literally, the literal level of the text is what the human author intended as history. But if the human author is using, perhaps, a figure of speech, saying in the Psalms as it does, my God is a rock. It does not mean that God is made of granite, but rather it means precisely that the human author is literally intending a figure of speech, and by that is indicating to us something of the truth that he is trying to convey. But in addition to the literal level of the Scriptures, a level which we must seek throughout the entirety of the Scriptures, for at each point in the Sacred Scriptures, the human author was directly intending something, and we must try to become clear about what that was, In addition to the literal level, there are also three spiritual senses of Scripture. The three spiritual senses of Scripture are usually named, first, the typological or sometimes the allegorical level, secondly, the moral level, and thirdly, the anagogical level. The typological level, sometimes, and in the New Catechism it's called the allegorical level, refers to the way in which Christ is the completion and the perfection and the sanctification of all the figures in the life of Israel that preceded him. Adam, for instance, is thought of as the type, and Christ is the anti-type, not in the sense of anti-freeze or anti-missile, but rather the completion of this type, and the one who brings to perfection what was imperfect, the one who sanctifies what is sinful, the one who makes holy what was still only incipient. In this typological level, one understands the whole life of Christ as involved in the process of recapitulation, that he is going through the stages, going through the time of Israel's infancy that is suggested by the life of Adam, going through the life of the youngest child that is perhaps understood in the parable with Abel and Cain, going through that portion of the life which is the child growing up in the course of Abraham, and eventually in the course of Moses and of David, working his way through the history of the life of Israel, but at each stage sanctifying what was so awfully sinful in those stories, at each stage completing what was incomplete and perfecting what is imperfect. One thinks, for instance, about the descriptions that are given to Abraham in the letter of St. Paul to the Romans, and likewise those passages of Hebrews which deals with this, our father in faith, and yet one who is in so many ways still childlike in the ways in which he manifests that faith. One sees in Christ what this life of faith and hope of charity is in its perfection. All of this is told to us in the typological meaning of scriptures, so that what we understand by seeing the life of Christ is how to understand all of the life of Israel that is reported in the Old Testament. The second portion of the spiritual census of scripture is the moral sense. We find these particularly in such passages as the Great Commandments or the Beatitudes, but in all those other places where we see what it is that Christ taught us to do and how it is that he showed us how it is that we ought to act and make our choices. Hence so much of the wisdom literature that is in the later portion of the Old Testament is involving this moral sense, this reflection on how we ought to act. And finally there is the anagogical sense, the way of leading us back to God. Here the church finds in so many places of the scriptures a sense of how the sacraments are anticipated in the Old Testament and then brought to their completion in the New so that we ourselves might recapitulate the life of Christ precisely by having Him enter our life with His divine grace and bring us home to the heaven where our loves are perfected and where our faith is now given vision for what we have hoped in is finally accomplished in the heaven that he has given us. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.